you'll turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 20. If you're a guest with us this morning, we walk through the Scripture together here at Bloomfield Baptist Church, and for some time now we've been walking through 1 Samuel, which records uh, an important chapter in the history of Israel. It records the transition between uh, two periods of God's people. God had given His people judges to rule over them, and they cried out for a king, and God gave them a king, and the first king's name was Saul. And Saul started out as one who was faithful to God, but he became disobedient. He wasn't willing to wait for the Lord. He wasn't willing to follow the Lord's instructions. He has rebelled against the Lord, and he's not willing to give up his throne. And so now we're at a point in the history of Israel where uh, they have a king who's reigning, Saul, but God has removed his spirit from him. He's removed his blessing from him, and he's already placed it on another, a young shepherd named David. And he, through his providence, has placed David already in the king's court, and he's given David favor among the people. And, and while it hasn't been publicly declared yet that he's to be the next king of Israel, Saul's kind of figuring these things out. He's seen how the people love David more than him. He's heeded the warning from the prophet Samuel that said that God would give the kingdom to another who would be favored over him. And now as he's watching these things unfold, he's doing everything he can to hold on to the throne and to hold on to power. And in the midst of this, God has given David a great friend in Jonathan, who is the son of Saul. He has knitted the hearts of Jonathan and David together. They have a, a covenant bond, a covenant love with one another. And we, we see that unfold as we come to today's, to today's passage. If you were with us a couple weeks ago, we left off with one of what is many attempts that Saul makes to take David's life. Uh, David had fled from Saul's presence. He had gone back to Samuel, the Lord's prophet, and while he's there with Samuel, uh, Saul comes after him, but Saul was so overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit that where we left off in chapter 19 is, is Saul is laying there, he's taken off his royal garments, and he's prophesying before the people, meaning he, he's speaking the truth of God's word, the very truth that he's not living according to. God humiliates him and humbles him, and in this process, he gives David an opportunity to flee once again. And so David flees to Jonathan, and that's where we pick up in the story today. And so we're going to look at chapter 20 in its entirety, and out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, if you would stand together as I read this passage for us, and as we prepare our hearts to hear from God's word. And this is what that word says. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. 
But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king, but let me go that I may hide myself in the field to the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked to leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there's a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there's guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed towards David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I did not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you. As he has been with my father. And if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. Saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain beside a stone heap. I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send out the boy saying, go find the arrows. And if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are on this side of you. Take them. Then you are to come for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go. For the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food, and the king sat on his seat as at other times, and on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. And Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he's not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? 
Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked to leave me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame, to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he surely shall die. And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. And as the boy ran, he shot the arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace. Because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between you and me, between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed. And Jonathan went into the city. If you would pray with me. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We, we thank you for this history that we've just read and I pray in these moments as we seek to unpack this that we might have a better understanding not just of what takes place in the 20th chapter of 1 Samuel but of of what takes place throughout your word of what it means to have a covenant based in the steadfast love of the Lord we ask this in Christ's name amen you may be seated A few years ago, I was asked to speak to a group of college students. It was about this time of the year. It was the week of Valentine's Day, and the talk was to be on the topic of God's love and, and how man's love falls short, but God's love is unfailing. In preparation for that talk, I was doing a little research, and for an illustration I was going to use, I was looking up some numbers on greeting cards. I wanted to see uh, you know, how many Valentine's Day cards are sent each year, and how much do people spend on Valentine's Day cards. And in that research, I, I stumbled upon something that I've never forgotten. It was a new collection 
of greeting cards that had just come out called the Secret Love Collection. It was a set of cards designed specifically for people who were having affairs. For people who were cheating on their spouses, specifically cheating on their spouses with someone at their workplace. And so, for example, one of the cards had a picture on the front of it depicting kind of an office setting. There was a water cooler, and then there was a doorway beside it with a glass window, and you could kind of see the shadows of two figures hiding in that room, embracing one another. And then the caption of that card read this way, The weekend apart is finally over. I missed you terribly. As I looked through those cards, I thought about the sad state that our culture is in, that there really is a greeting card for every occasion. And this one marking the unfaithfulness that's prevalent in our culture, a culture where so often commitments are not kept, where promises are broken, where, where covenants are severed. And as I considered that then and consider that now, I'm reminded that in the culture we live in that struggles with these things so greatly, we as God's people are called to come to His Word and be reminded that He does not struggle with this. That He is a covenant-keeping God. That when He makes a promise, He always keeps it. When, when God makes a commitment to His people, He always fulfills it. That, that His covenants are dependable because He is the covenant-keeping God. And we're reminded of that as we come to this section of God's Word. A narrative, a story that, that is about Saul and Jonathan and David, about David's life being preserved once again. But within this, there's a very important truth. There's a very important exchange that takes place between Jonathan and David that speaks of the steadfast love of the Lord. That the covenant-keeping love of God and this relationship this commitment between Jonathan and David, it's a picture of this. As we've seen so many pictures so far in 1 Samuel. And we've seen how David is a, a picture of that Messiah figure. And we've seen how Jonathan at times is, is a picture there that God gives us to learn from. And here today, we see yet another picture between these two men. One that teaches us about the steadfast love of God the covenant-keeping love of God. And so we're going to walk through this passage together and, and look at that covenant-keeping relationship that they had in hopes that we might learn more about this covenant-keeping relationship that God has with us, His people. Now again, just again, the, the reminder of the context here. Now David is fleeing from Saul. Saul was intent on taking David's life. Jonathan and David have a very different relationship than Saul and David. Jonathan loves David as he loves his own soul. There's this, this unique relationship that God has given them with one another. And I believe a foundation of that relationship is that Jonathan is gaining, we don't know when he figures it out, but he's gaining some insight here that David is the Lord's anointed king. That he, Jonathan, the, the next in line for the throne has formed this bond with the one who will actually sit on the throne. And he doesn't see this as a threat at all. In fact, in an early exchange between them, when they make a covenant with one another, 
Jonathan takes off his royal vestments. He puts them on David. It's a picture of him looking to David as that, that, that one who will rule over him one day. And we see that picture as we continue in today's passage. So let's walk through this and perhaps we can learn some things from it. Beginning with the first point there in your outline. Uh, Jonathan's covenant with David is a picture of the steadfast love of the Lord. Again, there's a picture here. And so David comes to Jonathan now. He has fled from Saul. And he is essentially pleading his case before Jonathan. He, he still doesn't understand why is it that Saul is so intent on killing him. And we've seen this exchange before. We've seen this exchange, in fact, between Jonathan and his father Saul. That's how we begin the last chapter where Jonathan is reminding Saul that David's not done anything against him. He's gone out and fought his wars. He's done things for him. He's blessed the kingdom. He's not been against Saul at all. And now David is coming and pleading those very things with Jonathan because he's literally running for his life. Now, it's a bit peculiar to us because at this point, Jonathan doesn't seem to think his father's out to kill David at all. And that might be a bit peculiar just because as you read through this narrative and what takes before, place before it, I mean... Saul is throwing spears at David. He is traveling to go kill David. He's sending out his assassins after David. But I think what's happened here is if you go back to the beginning of the last chapter and you see this exchange between Jonathan and his father, it seems that Saul is won over at least for a moment there and saying he won't harm David. And it appears that somehow Jonathan's kind of just kept out of the loop from that point moving forward. I mean, he, he's back at home in the city when all these things are taking place place and so as David comes to him he's still under the impression that he has his father's ear that he has his father's favor that that his father would never do these things without first consulting with him because that's exactly what took place in the last chapter Saul comes before his son comes before others says "I I want David dead and so Jonathan is telling David these things but David is quick to point out to Jonathan no you're, you're not aware of what's taking place Verse 3 says that there's one step between me and death. I mean, the picture here is that David is saying, listen, I I am walking in such a way that that I'm right on the edge. And if I just take one wrong step, I'm going over. That's how close I am to death. That's how close I am to destruction. That the picture here is that Saul has his bow aimed at David, that it is drawn and the arrow is pointed at him. And as soon as David comes out from behind that tree, his life is over. And so David is sharing all these things with Jonathan. And as he does, he, he seems to get Jonathan's attention. Jonathan is ready to listen to David's plea. And so David comes up with this plan to reveal Saul's motives. Now there's a new moon and this would mark a a feasting occasion with the king. This would mark a time when people were expected at the king's table. Uh, Jonathan would be expected there. Abner would be expected there. And David would be expected to be there. And David says, here's here's what I want you to do, Jonathan. I, I want you to lie, is essentially what he says. I'm going to go out and hide in the field, but as I hide in the field, I want you to tell your father that I've gone back to Bethlehem, to my city, because my brother has called me back there for this yearly sacrifice. They come up with this very elaborate plan, but it's a lie. 
And we need to note that this is the second time in recent chapters where people have lied to protect David. But as I noted before, when it pertained to David's wife, we need to understand this is a historical record, but just because the Bible records something doesn't mean it recommends it. This is descriptive, not prescriptive. This is not the Bible endorsing us to go out and lie. In fact, the Scripture is very clear that we are not to be liars. We are not to be people of deceit. We're to be people of the truth. But here in this situation, that's not what David does. He, he instructs Jonathan to lie. And so Jonathan indeed does lie, but this does not thwart God's plan. God still uses these things just as He uses us in our many failures and faults. So David tells Jonathan, tell this lie and then watch how Saul responds. And then they come up with this plan of how David's going to find out about uh, Saul's response. But what I want us to just kind of camp out on for a second is, is what takes place as they're hatching this plan in verses 14 through 17 there. Now look again at verse 14. Jonathan understands that if he's to do this, he's putting his own life at stake. <laughs> And that's why it says in verse 14, well, if I'm still alive, if my father doesn't find this out and kill me, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. The steadfast love of the Lord. And then just after that, do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. That, that phrase, steadfast love of the Lord, it, it comes from one word in the Hebrew, the word hesed. A word that occurs about 250 times in the Old Testament. It carries that the idea of, of love, of kindness, of affection, but it's a, it's a love and a kindness and affection that's, that's rooted in commitment, that's rooted in loyalty, that's rooted in faithfulness. So it's not just Merely love, it is loyal love. It's not just kindness, it's dependable kindness. It's not just the idea of affection, but it's an affection that has committed itself. It is a picture of the covenant love that God has for His people. And David and Jonathan in this covenant that they make with one another, it is rooted and the covenant relationship that they have with God. And the steadfast love that God has shown them, now they will show this steadfast love to each other. It's the foundation of what takes place in this passage. And that's why I want us to spend some time considering exactly what this steadfast love is and how it relates to us. And that's where we go in the next point there in your outline. Point two. We're reminded here that the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. It's better than life. The driving force in Jonathan's life is his covenant here that he makes with David. The steadfast love that he has for David and that David has for him. It's more important to him at this point than anything else. And that's why we see in this passage that he, he chooses that over his family. He chooses that over his future. He chooses that over his own life. 
I mean, notice how this unpacks. First, with his family. Jonathan chooses this covenant with David over loyalty to his father Saul. Now, Jonathan's been very faithful to his father. He's been very loyal to his father. He, he trusts greatly in his father. In fact, when David's come to him and said, what's taking place? The first response of Jonathan is, I don't believe my father would do that. <laughs> Jonathan's heart has not turned against his father. He's not hateful towards his father. He loves his father. But when it comes to this steadfast love, this covenant relationship that he has with David, well, he chooses that over his own family. And so he follows through in this plan and he goes and he tells this lie to Saul. And apparently Jonathan wasn't a very good liar <laughs> because his father doesn't seem to buy it for a second. In fact, notice what we see in verse 30. As soon as Jonathan tells this tale to his father, we read, Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman. I mean, that takes it to a whole new notch when you bring somebody's mama into it. And that's exactly what he does here. Which doesn't say much of Saul, because this is his wife he's speaking of, but you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, do you not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame, to the shame of your mother's nakedness? He's basically saying this to Jonathan. He's saying, I'm ashamed you were ever born. And you should be ashamed that you were ever born. You are ashamed to our family. Why? Because you have chosen allegiance with David over allegiance to your own family. From Jonathan's perspective, though, what is his allegiance? His, his allegiance is to God. He understands that David is the Lord's anointed one. And so he's in this steadfast love relationship, this covenant relationship, because God's in that kind of relationship with him and David. And that's the driving force here. He's not just picking a friend over his family. He's choosing the Lord's will over the will of his father. And Saul notes that. You pick loyalty to David over loyalty to your family. Then Saul points out that David hasn't just picked family. He's, he's giving up his future. Verse 31, he says, For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Jonathan was next in line for the throne. Jonathan was the future king of Israel. That's how these things worked. Saul was the first king. His family, his throne was established. Next, Jonathan would be in line. And Saul, he's holding on to that throne, not just for his sake, but for his family. And he's looking at Jonathan saying, don't you understand what you're going to give up? Unless we kill David, none of this will be yours. But Jonathan's not concerned here about his future Saul sees this as utter foolishness and so then we see that Jonathan's even willing to lose his life he'd already mentioned this to David and now it comes to fruition as Saul is so angry he heals heals he hurls a spear at his own son now I think we see in God's providence that he chose a man to be the first king over Israel who had terrible aim <laughs> Because how many times now has Saul hurled a spear at someone? Not across a field, but in a room, at a table, at a short distance. It would seem almost impossible to miss in these situations. But God in His providence protects Jonathan just as He protected David. 
But, but I do think we, we should step back for a moment and just consider, why, why was Jonathan willing to risk all these things? Why was he willing to give up his family and his future and even his own life? And again, we've already said the answer. It's because of this covenant that he has with David. It's a picture of the covenant that God has with us. It's a picture, friends, of what our response to God's covenant love should be. That that we too are called to be ready and willing to give up our family, our future, our, our life for the sake of the gospel and in response to the steadfast love of the Lord. This is what David cries out in Psalm 63. Your steadfast love, he's speaking to God here, your steadfast love is better than life. I mean, think about that for a second. We're prone to rate things and what's better than what. We, uh, Sandy and I took two of our kids out the other night. We went out to a steakhouse. We ate and, and one of the, well, how is this? How does this compare to such and such place? Or how does this compare to last time? Is this the, the best meal you ever ate? Well, we'll talk about things that way. This is better than this. This is better than this. Oh, this is the best. But what is the psalmist saying? What's David saying here? There's something that's better than all things that are better. <laughs> There's something that's better than everything in this world. There's something that's better than this life that we cling so tightly to. And it's the steadfast love of God. That's not just foolishness to Saul in response to Jonathan. Friends, that's that's foolishness to the world today. For we as followers of Christ to hold on to something so tightly that we say this this is more important to me than anything else in life. The world. It's more important that, than my life. That's the picture we have here. This is how Jesus talks about the gospel. This is how Jesus talks about our covenant relationship with Him. This, this is what we heard earlier when Pastor David was reading from Luke 14. Luke 14, verse 26. Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate, hate, his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now listen, we've tried to water that thing down as much as we can, but this is what Jesus said. He said in comparison here, you have to be ready and willing to hate these things, even your own life. Jesus isn't saying that in order to be a faithful disciple, we come before the church and say, well, I... I want to give my testimony and I want to start out by saying how much I hate my parents. And <laughs> there, there's my brother and sister in the background. I hate you guys. And in fact, I really just hate myself. Let me tell you all the ways I hate myself. That, that's not the picture here. But what the picture here is, is this. That, that our allegiance, our loyalty is primarily to Christ over all other things and that we have to make a choice that we cannot hold on to the things of this world and hold on to Jesus at the same time. And at times what that means is that we might need to let go of family and let go of our future plans and even let go of our life because our allegiance is to Jesus 
above anything and everything. Now that, to some of you, may sound radically crazy this morning. And that may be an indication that you haven't actually fully understood and responded to the Gospel. Because friends, once you taste it, once you know the steadfast love of the Lord, then you too can call out as David did that it's better. Oh, it's better than, than anything this world has to offer. I love my family. but I long to love Jesus more. I love so many things about my life, but I, I long to love Jesus more. I'm reminded with each passing day and each added pound and each doctor visit and each blood pressure medicine or cholesterol medicine that this life is fleeting <laughs> as my hairline is. It's declining as we all are day by day. This life will not last. Why do we cling so tightly to that which will not last? We're reminded here of something greater we can cling to Jesus says in Luke 14.33, So therefore, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Again, we can't water that down. He says you can't have two masters. Cling to me over and above all else. And so he makes it clear that we have to make an allegiance. Are you willing to choose Jesus over anything else in this world? over your own family, over your future plans, between Jesus and your own life. Which will you choose? Which are you choosing? Luke 9, 23, Jesus said, If anyone would come after Him, let them deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Jesus, for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever will lose his life for Jesus' sake will save it. Are you willing to let go of these things? This might seem so hypothetical to you this morning, but no, this is the reality for so many of our brothers and sisters in the faith around the world. I was reminded of this just this week. I got an email from a friend who's a missionary in West Africa where I've gone, a number of you have gone, on trips with me in recent years. And as some of you know Hama from me sharing stories about him or from your time there. Uh, I first met Hama uh, over a decade ago. Uh, the first village that my friends were ministering in, Hama was a young boy there. He was one of the first converts to the faith in, in a region and a village where there were no Christians, none, for generations, no believers, never heard the gospel. These missionaries with the first gospel presence there, it was hard ground. It was years before they saw anyone trust in Christ, but Hama was one of the first as a young boy. He put his faith in Jesus, and it's been such a blessing over this last decade to, to watch from a distance and at times in person and see Hama growing in his faith. He now lives in the capital city where the missionaries live. This last trip that me and a couple others took uh, just a couple years ago to do some training with pastors, Hama was sitting there on the, the front row and, and just diligently writing down everything we said. 
I was talking to the missionary. He said, yeah, it's, it's remarkable. He has no formal education. He's taught himself to read and write because he wanted to read the Bible. He wanted to write down God's Word. I got an email this week that, that Hama's family sat down with him this week and said, it, it's time for you to choose. We, we've, we've had enough of this Jesus stuff. Yeah, you got to choose. It's Jesus or it's us. He chose Jesus. Doesn't have a home now, doesn't have a family now. But he chose Jesus. Are you willing to make that choice, family? If that's the dinner conversation you were to have with your family tonight, what, what do you say? Who, who do you choose? We live in a world and in a culture where these hypotheticals may soon become a reality. Where the world is more and more, not just antagonistic towards the gospel, but angered by those who truly stand on the truth of God's word and believe it and call others to repentance according to it. And this is not tolerated by many. And we here in Bloomfield, Kentucky may find ourselves in the situation one day where we're having to choose between Jesus and our business, Jesus and our material things, Jesus and our family. Are we willing to choose Jesus over and above all else? I believe that's the call that God has put on our life and it's the reminder to us as we consider this the steadfast love that God has for us and that, that we're choosing the one who has already chosen us. And that's the picture we have here. That this steadfast love, this hesed love of God is a love that He initiates with us. He has chosen us. He's called us. And in response to that choice and that calling, He's, he's calling on us to choose Him. We need to understand this, this all comes back to this foundational relationship we have with God, this love that He's first shown us. Which brings us to that third and concluding point there in your outline. The steadfast love of the Lord will never let us go. So Saul, in his poor aim, <laughs> hurls the Spirit, Jonathan, that this grieves Jonathan, it, it angers Jonathan. He loves his father, he sought to be loyal to his father, now his father's seeking to kill him as well. And the motives become clear. And so the plan plays out. He goes through what he had already laid out with David and shoots the arrows. And, and this will be one of David and Jonathan's last encounters with one another. This is the encounter where I think it's, it's clear to them both that David will not be back in Saul's home. That he'll be on the run for the rest of Saul's life. And so verse 42, then Jonathan said to David, go in peace. He, he gives him a blessing and then he reminds him of this covenant relationship. Because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord shall be between me and you, between my offspring and your offspring forever. Jonathan is reminding David that he and Jonathan, they're in a covenant relationship with one another and this covenant doesn't end with the grave, that this covenant goes on to their offspring. Now, practically, what he's saying to David is there's going to be a day when you're going to rule over the throne and what was customary in that day was for, for someone 
outside of that king's family to come to the throne, they would essentially wipe out all future threats from the predecessor and wipe out their families. There'd be no threat to their throne. And Jonathan here is saying, will you show this steadfast love to my family because I'm part of Saul's family? And it's a beautiful picture of what takes place in the future, and we'll get to this eventually, but the, the way that David shows this love to Jonathan's crippled child, Mephibosheth, in the future. It's, it's a beautiful picture of the gospel, and we'll, we'll get there. But for now, just be reminded that this covenant relationship that David and Jonathan have, this picture that we have of our covenant relationship with God, it's not conditional. It's not if-then. It's not based on how strong Jonathan's affections for David were or David's affections for Jonathan were, and it's a picture of this covenant relationship we have with God because it's not an if-then either. God's steadfast love for us, it endures. And when you fall short and why I fall short, we don't mess it up. God continues. He, he is persistent in His steadfast love for us. How do we experience this love? Well, we come into a covenant relationship with Him that God initiates through His love. We're reminded of this throughout the Scripture. I'll read to you some familiar passages. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Romans 5, 8. God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God has initiated this love. He, he has shown this love. So what do we need to do? Romans 10 verse 9. If you and I confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, the Scripture says we will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So you see, we have to confess Christ as Lord. We have to choose Jesus in order to experience this steadfast love of the Lord. This loyal love of God. This love then that will never let us go. Romans 8, verse 38 and 39. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The steadfast love of the Lord will never let us go. And so know that, friend. In a world that doesn't keep promises, where commitments are not followed through on, where covenants are broken, we serve a God who keeps His promises, who fulfills His commitments, who's a covenant-keeping God, and He will never let us go. I'll close with this. A, a reminder to us, there was a man, some of you know the name George Matheson. He, he went on to write many great hymns. He lived in the late 1800s in Scotland. As a young man, he felt called to the ministry. He was at seminary. 
uh, preparing to be a minister. He was engaged to be married. He had this very bright future ahead of him. And then through illness, uh, he was struck with blindness. His fiance did not want to be married to a blind man, and so she left him. He became completely blind and needed to be cared for. And so his, his sister was very gracious and loving, and she cared for Matheson, but as the years would go on, she would become engaged to be married. And on the eve of her wedding, Matheson fell into a bit of a pit of despair as he considered his fiance who left him, this blindness that overwhelmed him, and now his sister would be married to someone and that would take her away from him. He, he was just in despair. His heart was overwhelmed. Where do you go to in those moments? Well, what counsel do you seek when, when it seems that all is lost and, and nothing worked out like you thought it would? He went to the counsel of God's Word and to the steadfast love of the Lord. And then he wrote these words, this hymn that is still sung by many today. O oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe. That in thy ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O oh, love that will not let me go. Friends, that's the Hesed love of God. That's the steadfast love of God. And so be reminded as we wrestle through the trials and the tragedies of this world, as we encounter suffering, as we befall things that we never imagined might come, be reminded of the love of God that will not let us go. And be encouraged and walk by faith. If you would pray with me to that end. Father, we thank you for the assurance that you offer us, the same assurance that you offered to George Matheson is available for us today. So help us, Lord, to have this assurance through the gospel that we too might know what it means. That this assurance that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation can separate us from this hesed love, from this steadfast love you have for us. Lord, we, we don't have that if we haven't come into a covenant relationship with you. So I pray in these moments, in this time of response, as we invite one another to consider the truth of your word and respond to it accordingly, that if there's any gathered with us this morning who's yet to experience your steadfast covenant-keeping love, that through the power of your Spirit that you would call them to repentance and faith today. And Lord, for those who perhaps have repented and placed their trust in you long ago, I pray, God, that this reminder would be an encouragement to them, especially in these days, to walk by faith and not by sight. And help our trust and our hope to be in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, if you would stand together as we sing together as we worship in this time of response and we do invite you to respond and a primary response to God's word is to lift our voices and to worship God and to sing
It may be that in this time you need to just stop and pray that God has put on your heart this morning something specific you need to pray about or pray for. Perhaps a friend who's suffering, perhaps suffering in your own life, that you need to just stop and pray. It may be that there's been conviction of sin that you need to repent of. It may be that God's calling you to come and make a a public profession of your faith in Jesus and to follow through on that profession with baptism and to start the process of joining this church family. It may be you just need someone to pray with you. Whatever it is, we invite you to come and to respond as we lift our voices together and as we sing.